Tom has asked me to uh, read the entire book of Jeremiah. <laughs> no, we're going to read a lengthy passage. It's chapter 6. Listen. Flee for safety, people of Benjamin. Flee from Jerusalem. Sound the trumpet in Tekoa. Raise the signal over Beth Herakim. For disaster looms out of the north, even terrible destruction. I will destroy the daughter of Zion, so beautiful and delicate. Shepherds with their flocks will come against her. They will pitch their tents around her, each tending his own portion. Prepare for battle against her. Arise, let us attack at noon. But alas, the daylight is fading and the shadows of evening grow long. So arise, let us attack at night and destroy her fortresses. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Cut down the trees and build siege ramps against the city of Jerusalem. This city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. As a well pours out its waters, so she pours out her wickedness, violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. Take warning, O Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you and make your land desolate so no one can live in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Let them glean the remnant of Israel as thoroughly as a vine. Pass your hand over the branches again like one gathering grapes. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed, so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord, and I cannot hold it in. Pour it out on the children in the street and on the young men gathered together. Both husband and wife will be caught in it, and the old, those weighed down with years. Their houses will be turned over to others together with their fields and their wives. When I stretch out my hand against those who live in the land, declares the Lord. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. And this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet, but you said, we will not listen. Therefore hear, O nations, observe, O witnesses, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes, because they have not listened to my words and they have rejected my law. What do I care about incense from Sheba or sweet calamus from a distant land? 
Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will put obstacles before this people. Fathers and sons alike will stumble over them. Neighbors and friends will perish. This is what the Lord says. Look, an army is coming from the land of the north. A great nation is being stirred up from the ends of the earth. They are armed with bow and spear. They are cruel and they show no mercy. They sound like the roaring sea as they ride on their horses. They come like men in battle formation to attack you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard reports about them and our hands hang limp. Anguish has gripped us, pain like that of a woman in labor. Do not go out to the fields or walk on the roads, for the enemy has a sword and there is terror on every side. O my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Mourn with bitter wailing as for an only son, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. I have made you a tester of metals, and my people are the ore that you may observe and test their ways. They are all hardened rebels going about to slander. They are bronze and iron. They all act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely to burn away the lead with fire, but the refining goes on in vain. The wicked are not purged out. They are called rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, these are somber and stern words through your prophet to your people. I pray that we would hear them. We would understand that they are as relevant at this very moment as they have ever been. And we would pay very close attention. And we pray, Father, that we would be changed by your spirit working through your word. Good morning. Thus far in the opening chapters of Jeremiah, we've seen God's commission to his faithful prophet. We've seen the opening argument in his case against his people Israel. We've seen him extend that case to the southern tribes of Judah. And we've seen his command to his people to return to him in order that they might be spared the judgment that was about to come because of their persistent sins against him. Now in chapters 4 through 6, God shifts his focus to warning of the judgment that's coming. He reveals in frightening terms a harsh judgment that would soon befall his people if they would not humbly confess that they were guilty of every accusation he had leveled against them, and if they would not humbly return to him calling out to Him to save them from Himself. Now, it's not easy to divide chapters 4 through 6, and that's really our whole text this morning. Couldn't really read all of it, but it's not easy to divide chapters 4 through 6 into parts. But there are three repeated themes that, that bind this passage together. The theme that immediately grabs the reader's attention is God's dire warning to Judah and Jerusalem of the terrible judgment that he would soon execute through a mighty warrior nation that he was going to raise up against them. The other two themes that occur over and over in this passage have already been 
introduced in the book. Accusations that spell out God's reasons for the impending judgment. And God's call, repeated call for repentance so that they might be spared the worst of those judgments. But there's no predictable sequence in these three chapters to the, to the repetition of those themes. It's, the feeling of the chapters is, is more like a whirlwind of warnings and accusations and counter-arguments and petitions that are flying back and forth between God's faithful prophet Jeremiah and the leaders of the city of Jerusalem. And it feels as if the army that God is bringing against His people is already already beginning to set up siege works outside the city. It's that level of urgency that we feel in these chapters, even though the siege of Jerusalem was quite a few years later to come. Derek Kidner, in his excellent commentary on this book, points out that as Jeremiah 4 opens, the warnings of disastrous judgment come in rapid succession with very brief declarations of accusation and calls to repentance. And then as chapters 5 and 6 continue to develop these themes, the accusations and the commands to return to God and the declarations of the judgment to come become more extended and more more vivid. God is going to judge the persistent sins of His people. The formidable threat that He sets before Judah in these chapters is the same threat that pervades all of the first 41 chapters of this book. It is the threat of a disastrous judgment of God against His people by the hands of a fierce nation that would come and invade from the north. That enemy would prove to be the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Now Babylon was more east of Palestine than it was north. But the army of Babylon would come, it would follow the Tigris and Euphrates rivers up to the north and it would drop down directly from the north into Palestine. And it would invade the country and the invasion would persist until 586 B.C. when the walls of Jerusalem came down. I want you to listen as I read several excerpts from these three chapters, starting with chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Declare in Judah... And proclaim in Jerusalem, blow the trumpet in the land, cry aloud and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Lift up a standard toward Zion, toward Jerusalem. Seek refuge, do not stand still, for I am bringing evil from the north, a great destruction. In this first iteration of God's warning, God is actually mocking His people's response to the threat. He's anticipating their words, not His words. The leaders of the city are saying, assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. The greatest of those cities, of course, was Jerusalem. The capital of Judah. And the people assumed that Jerusalem had the additional wonderful protection of the temple, the presence of the temple of God in the midst of the city. And they believed that there was no possible way that Yahweh would allow an invading army to come in to ransack his house. So they believed that was the place to be when a threat arose of this nature. But as the warnings progressed through these three chapters, God declares that the fortified cities of Judah would be no refuge at all to his people. 
No protection at all against the army that He was mustering against them. Chapter 4, verse 16. God says, Report to the nations now. Proclaim over Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a far country and lift their voices against the cities of Judah. Like watchmen of a field, they are against her round about because she has rebelled against me, declares Yahweh. Chapter 5, verse 15, He says, Behold, I, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open grave. All of them are mighty men. They will devour your harvest and your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters. They will devour your flocks and your herds. They will devour your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. In chapter 6, God makes it clear that even Jerusalem the great city of David would be no refuge against the coming invasion. Chapter 6, verses 1-5 through is a flurry of panicked cries from the people inside the city calling out for protection. And those cries are interspersed with Yahweh's instructions as He commands the forces of the invading army. Chapter 6, verse 1, The people say, flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. They're saying, we need to get out of the city of Jerusalem because this isn't working. It's not protecting us. Blow a trumpet in Tekoa and raise a signal over Beth Hakarim for evil looks down from the north and a great destruction. Tekoa and Beth Hakarim were like suburbs of the city of Jerusalem. They were both walking distance, easy walking distance from the city. And then the invading army says, prepare war against your arise and let us attack at noon. And then the people of Jerusalem cry out, woe to us for the day declines, for the shadows of the evening lengthen. And then the invading armies say, no, we're not going to wait till noon. Arise, let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the commander of this invading army, he says, cut down her trees and cast up a siege against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished in whose midst there is only oppression. God is saying to to the army that He has raised, go and cut down the trees in the forest that surround the city of Jerusalem and build up siege works that you might lay siege to the city. And that's exactly what ended up happening for a year and a half. Chapter 6, verse 22, thus says Yahweh, Behold, a people is coming from the northland and a great nation will be aroused from the remote parts of the earth. They seize bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea and they ride on horses arrayed as a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Zion. God makes it crystal clear that the invasion would soon overtake even the great city of Jerusalem and that that invasion would not be a matter of one nation seeking advantage over another nation as all the wars of men had been. 
It would be God Himself executing fierce judgment against His own covenant people. God left no room at all for doubt about whom it was that Judah actually had to fear. What a hugely important lesson this is for us, beloved, as it was for them. The only judgment that we who belong to Christ have cause to fear is the chastising judgment of our God. If through persistent, stubborn sin against Him, we are setting ourselves up for His judgment against us, then we have cause to be very, very fearful. We need to pray that God will give us ears to hear the gracious warnings that Israel and Judah refused to hear. We'll talk a lot more about that. God will judge the persistent sins of His people and He tells them what those persistent sins were. Interspersed with the repeated warnings of fearsome judgment in these chapters are numerous indictments against Judah, just like those that God had leveled against Israel in the opening chapters. He graciously tells His people why this judgment is coming and He calls them to turn back to Him that they might be spared. That will change later. The opportunity to be spared will be removed. In the simplest terms, God's anger against Judah was because of their rebellion against God. In chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, God said, besiegers will come against the cities of Judah because she has rebelled against me. In 5.23, he says, this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. God had been making that exact same accusation against Israel and Judah for a very, very long time. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, when, when Israel was, was poised on the, on the east side of the Jordan River, ready to go across the river into the land of promise after 40 years in the wilderness, God said to them, Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that Yahweh your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked Yahweh your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Now nearly a thousand years later in the days of Jeremiah, the patience of God against this stiff-necked and rebellious people that He saved out of slavery in Egypt to be His own treasured possession... That stubbornness has been pressed to its limits and God was about to execute an exceedingly painful judgment against them if they did not return to Him in humble faith and submission. Another accusation that comes up over and over in this passage is spiritual adultery against God. This is a little more specific than the accusation of rebellion. Chapter 5, verses 7 to 9 is a great example of this, and it just echoes what we've already seen in some of the preceding chapters. I'm not going to read that particular set of verses. But I will point out yet again that the very same accusation of spiritual adultery is leveled against 
some in the church of Jesus Christ by James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 4. He says, you adulteresses, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God and whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? And then in case we might think that he's talking to the unredeemed, he says, do you think it is written to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. Beloved, we, you and I, and all of us together as the bride of Christ, are as capable of spiritual adultery against our Redeemer as Israel and Judah ever were. And we need to bear that in mind. Another accusation that reappears in this passage is that Judah had no fear of God. Back in chapter 2, verse 19, as God was beginning to make His case against Israel, He said, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of Me is not in you. The dread of Me is not in you. Declares the sovereign God of armies. That's what that the Lord God of hosts means the sovereign God of armies. Now in chapter 5, verses 22 to 25, he says, Do you not fear me? declares Yahweh. Do you not tremble in my presence? But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and they have departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear Yahweh our God who gives rain in its season. Both the autumn rain and the spring rain who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. And then God says to them, your iniquities have turned these things away from you. Your sins have withheld good from you. And that was just the beginning of what was going to befall His people. It was the height of foolishness then for God's people not to fear Him. And it is the height of foolishness now for God's people not to fear Him. As we've already seen, God made it painfully clear that the judgment that would soon come would be from Him, not from men. They refused to hear the warnings of God because they had no genuine fear of God. They feared Egypt. They feared Assyria. They feared Babylon, but they didn't fear Yahweh. What do we fear, brothers and sisters? What makes us tremble? We're going to talk a lot more about godly fear when we get to God's satire against the pathetic idols of Judah in chapter 10, but this is already a key theme of the book right here, and we need to be thinking hard about it. What do we fear? Some Bible translators render the word fear Fear of God as reverence or respect. But the synonyms that God Himself uses for the word fear are words like terror, dread, and trembling. Don't you think maybe we should define that word the way God defines it? They did not fear God and they were shameless. 
Chapter 6, verse 15, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be cast down, says Yahweh. He was talking about prophets and priests and princes, but also about the people themselves. He said they don't even know how to blush. If there's anything that consistently characterizes the culture of our age, it is shamelessness. There are no longer any words that are coarse enough to be called shameful even if they're spoken from the lips of children. We allow ourselves to be entertained by TV shows and movies and music and internet videos that bombard us with sexual images and language and behavior that go way beyond the line that separates that which is honorable from that which is shameful. And yet, whatever shame that shameful content produces in us isn't enough to stop us from looking at it again. I'm guilty of this, beloved. By the time I hit the fast-forward button, most of the time the damage is already done. In Psalm 101, verses 1 and 2, here's what King David said about about honor and shame. He said, I will give heed to the blameless way. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. May that be our prayer, our earnest prayer and our earnest resolve by the power of God. Another persistent sin that God points out in this passage is that that Judah pursued personal prosperity and comfort at the expense of godly compassion. And this, of course, is huge throughout both Testaments. Chapter 5, verse 27, he said, They have become great and rich. They are fat. They are sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares Yahweh? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? James 1 verse 27 says, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Chapter 2 verse 25, James says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, What use is that? One of the great hallmarks of the people of God when we are walking closely with our God is that we hold very, very loosely to wealth and comfort and control. In Acts chapter 4, Luke said of the early believers in Jerusalem that not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. How long has it been since the New Testament church looked like that? One of the most 
devastating sins that is pointed out in this passage is in these three chapters, chapters 4 through 6, is the people's refusal to hear the Word of God. Chapter 6, verse 10, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. Behold, the Word of Yahweh has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Verse 16, Thus says Yahweh, Stand by... This is amazing. Stand by the ways, see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. God says, and I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. He's saying, I sent my prophets to warn you and they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their own plans, because they have not listened to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it also. Verse 16 is is particularly powerful to me. If you write a Christian book and you want to make sure that nobody buys it, Make sure that on the cover you point out that the content in it is ancient wisdom. This, the evangelical Christian world today has very little interest in anything that's, that's not new. But God's gracious and merciful command to His people right now, this very day, is exactly the same as it was thousands of years ago. And here it is. Hear the word of Yahweh. See and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. If we choose to turn away from that ancient, unchanging path, the one who will oppose us at every turn... <laughs> is the ancient, unchanging God who has always been. And along with the people's refusal to hear the Word of God was the shepherd's refusal to speak the Word of God. Chapter 4, verse 9, It shall come about in that day, declares Yahweh, that the heart of the king and the heart of the princes will fail, and the priests will be appalled, and the prophets will be astounded. Chapter 5, verse 12, They have lied about Yahweh, and they have said, Not he. Misfortune will not come upon us and we will not see sword or famine even though God kept saying that they would. And God says the prophets are as wind and the Word is not in them. Thus, it will be done to them everything that He has declared. Chapter 6, verse 12, For I stretch out My hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares Yahweh. All of them, from the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of My people superficially, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. As this book proceeds, we will see vivid examples of men who were commissioned by God to speak to God's people on God's behalf, but who lied to them about the judgments that God was proclaiming. Telling them they would not have to suffer the outpouring of God's judgment or that it would last a whole lot less time than He said it would. Telling them to seek refuge somewhere other than in Yahweh. 
Beloved, if those whom God has appointed as shepherds over His people will not say the hard things that call His people back to Him alone, then they will be the first in line when His corrective judgment is poured out. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, for as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I think of that verse all the time. What kinds of books fill the end caps and the floor displays at Christian bookstores today? Often it's books about how important your self-esteem is to God. About how important your good health and even your diet are to God. About how important your financial security is to God. About how important are the boundaries that you draw to protect yourself from wrongs done by others. Books about how benign and tolerant the love of God is. Books about how eager God is to fulfill your personal dreams and aspirations. About how you don't have to wait another single minute to have your best life now. How that kind of refuse finds its way onto the most prominent shelves of so-called Christian bookstores is beyond imagining. It doesn't even belong on the clearance discount table. The Christian bookstores that once actually had the integrity to filter their offerings through the lens of God's Word have all been driven out of business and have closed their doors. Why do you think that is if the church is not driving that? I know I'm not supposed to sound angry in the pulpit, but guys, that makes me furious. If I ever start spouting that kind of anti-biblical nonsense, Please shoot me and put me out of everyone else's misery. Those were some of the persistent sins that God points out in this passage. And God makes it very clear, and I really pray that you're with me in listening at this point, that that kind of rebellion on the part of God's people is a wound not easily healed. In Jeremiah 6, verse 7, God says, As a well keeps its waters fresh, so... She, Jerusalem, keeps fresh her wickedness. Violence and destruction are heard in her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. The verse part of that verse is no doubt a a play on the waterless cisterns of chapter 2. God's people had turned away from Him, the fountain of living waters, to dig for themselves broken cisterns, holes in the ground that could hold no water. Yet, he says now, they were experts at keeping the waters of their wicked rebellion against God ever fresh. In a drought, a desert drought of righteousness, the land was filled with an overflowing flood of high-handed rebellion against God. By calling grievous sin a sickness and a wound here, God is not saying that His people weren't accountable for it. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart of man is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if you read that passage, you'll see very clearly God's not saying that they're not accountable for it. God calls the wickedness of His people a sickness and a wound because it is a grievous violation of the well-being of right relationship with Him for which He created His people. Sin is far more destructive to every man and to mankind 
than the most aggressive cancer or the most infectious plague. And the persistent sins within the church, the persistent sins within the church are a far greater threat to the church than the sins of the culture. But persistent sin is a self for believers, for the, for the people of God, is a self-inflicted illness. It is a self-inflicted wound. And if there's one thing that comes through loudly and clearly and repeatedly in these three chapters, it is that the rebellion of God's own people against God is a wound that is not easily cured. Jeremiah 5.3 O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have smitten them, but they did not weaken. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Chapter 6, verses 27 to 30. I have made you, Jeremiah, an assayer and a tester among my people that you may know and, and assay their way. All of them are stubbornly rebellious, going about as a talebearer. They are bronze and iron. They, all of them are corrupt. And then listen, the bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain, in vain the refining goes on, but the wicked are not separated. The lead comes to the surface and it's skimmed off, but the silver isn't getting any more pure. So God was about to turn up the heat in that furnace until it vaporized the dross. When we persist in turning away from God, there is no escape from God's corrective judgment. Four, chapter 4, verse 29. At the sound of the horsemen and the bowmen, every city flees. They go into the thickets. They climb among the rocks. Every city is forsaken and no man dwells in them. They were, they were fleeing like roaches to find some kind of cover. And he says, you, O desolate one, Jerusalem, what will you do? Although you dress in scarlet, although you decorate yourself with ornaments of gold, although you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you make yourself beautiful. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. Judah didn't understand why they couldn't entice one pagan nation to defend them against another pagan nation. After all, they had embraced the gods of all of them. They wouldn't accept the word of God's prophets that told them over and over that it was Yahweh. It was Yahweh who wouldn't allow them to find refuge in godless nations because their problem was never Egypt or Assyria or Babylon. Their problem was Yahweh. One of the many things that God's dealings with Israel and Judah should drive home in our hearts is that when God's people upon whom God has showered His grace over and over turn their hearts away from God to do things that do not profit, that betrayal, that rebellion dies hard. That is infinitely more true for us who have been redeemed from the eternal punishment and everlasting power of our sin to be made children of the living God when all we deserved was hell. When we who have received the unfathomable riches of Christ turn away with ungrateful hearts from the fountain of living waters to dig for ourselves holes in the ground that are broken and cannot hold water, when God's people turn away from God to things that do not profit, that kind of insane ingratitude is very hard to fix. It dies hard. 
And it sets us up for exceedingly painful judgment from the hand of our covenant-keeping God. Now, I know some of you will disagree with this next point. That's perfectly fine. I'm just going to share my understanding with you. It's passages just such as this one in Jeremiah, and really going all the way back to Deuteronomy, that made me think years ago that the stern warnings in the book of Hebrews are directed against the redeemed of God rather than the unredeemed. Because those warnings sound just like these warnings. But ultimately, it was the content and the context of the warnings in Hebrews that finally convinced me that they do indeed belong to the church. And those warnings should be taken very seriously by the church. We do not have a benign God. Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That last part shouldn't surprise us because in verse 18 he said, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there no longer is an offering for sin. You can't re-crucify Christ. And then he says, but here's what does remain, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. James says, he who makes himself a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And he's talking to those indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Over and over, He says, Shall I not judge a people like this? Shall I not avenge myself on them? And again, the Lord will judge His people. This is Hebrews. The Lord will judge His people. Whom? His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you and I think that it is a terrifying thing for us as believers to fall into the hands of the living God? Because if we don't, we don't understand who it is with whom we have to do. I'm going to skip some stuff because I'm running over. But This would be one of the hardest lessons for Judah. It is one of the hardest lessons for us. Beloved, the rebellion of God's people against our redeeming God is a self-inflicted wound that is not easily healed. And the corrective judgment of God against the rebellion of His people is a God-inflicted wound that is not easily avoided. It's far, far better never to enter into such persistent sin than it is to be, have to be brought back from it because being brought back from it is a very hard road. It is far, far better for us not to turn our face away from the fountain of living waters and fall into our own broken holes in the ground than it is to have to be pulled out of those waterless cisterns by the one from whom we have turned away. The last thing I want you to see in this passage is that God repeatedly says this is not a complete destruction. Chapter 4, verse 27, For thus says Yahweh, the whole land will be a desolation, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. Chapter 5, verse 9, Shall I not punish these people, declares Yahweh, and on a nation such as this shall I not avenge myself, go up through her vine rows and destroy, but do not execute a complete destruction. 
Chapter 5, verse 15, Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. Verse 18, Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make you a complete destruction. Why would God not completely destroy Judah? Covenant. You're right, Steve. In Micah, he says, What God is like this one who pardons the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. And then it says why he did it. Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Listen to this. Jeremiah 30, verse 11. For I am with you, declares Yahweh, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. Beloved, these judgments are gracious. Doesn't mean they're any fun. This is how God loves His people. Do you discipline your child because you hate your child? Neither does God. I said earlier that the persistent sins within the church constitute a far greater threat to to the church than the sins of the culture that surrounds us. And beloved, that's why God sees to it that He is a far greater threat than our sins. Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God said to Israel, You only have I chosen out of all the peoples of the earth. Therefore, I will punish all your iniquities. There's nothing more miserable on this earth than a miserable Christian. And that's God's doing when we turn our face away from Him. These were terrible judgments that ended the physical lives of many men, women, and children in Judah and Jerusalem. For a time, they brought about the harshest imaginable circumstances for those who were stuck in the city of Jerusalem during that 18-month siege. But these were temporary earthly judgments. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged But when we are judged, we, the people of God, are disciplined by God in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's a whole different reason for discipline, for punishment. There is a judgment coming that will not be gracious. It will not be intended to correct or restore. It will be intended to destroy. And its destruction will be everlasting. That coming final judgment awaits all who reject God's one and only provision for true reconciliation of sinners to Him. That one provision is the perfect righteousness, the atoning sacrifice, and the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you put your trust in Him alone today, you will become part of the community of saints whose only legitimate fear is the one who poured out His Son's own lifeblood to make us His treasured possession forever. If you put your trust in Him today, He promises you that nothing, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear Father, give us ears to hear humbly Your Word to us even, no, especially when that Word threatens everything that we hold dear that isn't You. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.